For those of you who are new here, I'm uh, Chris Dirksen. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland. We're so glad you're here. And uh, again, uh, you know, uh, we know of places in Africa. You know, we do, we do ministry in Uganda there and, and in Asia and stuff. We know places in Uganda and in, uh, or in Africa, I should say, and, and in Asia where people get up literally in the middle of the night and they'll walk hours so that they can go to church. And uh, so today we get just a little touch of, you know, uh, people wanting to get together and willing to go through something in order to meet together and worship and all that sort of stuff, which is very good. Uh, I'm going to start a new series today. Uh, we just finished the series, uh, that series I was doing on, on seven, called Seven, uh, the letters to the seven churches, Revelation 1 through 3. We just worked our way verse through, by verse through that uh, passage of Scripture. I'm going to start a new series today on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It'll go for a while, as my series always do. We'll take breaks. Other people will preach. Different things will happen. But I'm going to work my way through it. And uh, over the last several weeks, um, as the, that last series, there seven, was ending, and then in, in the last couple of weeks, so now when uh, Tom and, and Pastor Ray preached last week, and I've been meeting with lots of you, lots of people, uh, meetings, members, some membership meetings, some, uh, just praying with people, uh, questions people have, different things. And so over the last few weeks, as I've been meeting with, with lots of people here from the church, uh, lots of very practical questions coming up. And so it was already forming. I've been praying already for the last month. Lord, uh, where are we going to go next? What series should we do and all sorts of stuff? And I've, I've just met so many people with questions about money, about worry, about anger, just, just practical things of life. And I just had this feeling, uh, I wanted to do a, a very practical uh, series just about life and, and how to live. And, uh, and so as I was praying about that, but what am I going to do? Am I going to do a series on money and then a series on this and a series on that? Um, but as I was praying at the prayer summit last week, uh, during the communion time, right at the end, all of a sudden it just, it just came to me, I think it was the Holy Spirit, but uh, just, oh, the Sermon on the Mount is all about that. God's manifesto to us on how to live. It covers, uh, it covers everything. It covers lust, covers prayer, covers money, covers worry, covers fear, covers uh, all kinds of stuff. It's just super practical. And so I'm just going to begin. We're just going to start working our way through it. Today we're just going to do a little intro. Uh, we're just going to do the Beatitudes plus a uh, a big rabbit trail that I, that I really feel like uh, we need to talk about, and uh, that'll be it for today, but then after that, we're just going to work our way through it, all right? So if you want to bow your heads with me and, and close your eyes, and we will get into this. Uh, Lord Jesus, I, first of all, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for what you're doing here in this church, and I thank you that we can have problems like parking lot problems and traffic problems. Jesus, you are alive and well, and we appreciate that, and we appreciate the power and, and what we're seeing you do here. And so we're thankful for that. We're also thankful for this passage of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you that you loved us enough to preach such an explicit, specific, practical message to us of what kingdom living looks like. I pray that your Holy Spirit would get a hold of our hearts here this morning and into the afternoon, Lord Jesus, and that we would be able to apply these things and be changed by them. In your name we pray. Amen. Before we get into the actual uh, substance, this is sort of an intro message, before we get into the actual substance of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount itself, I wanted to talk a little bit about some misconceptions about Jesus, um, because if you misunderstand who Jesus is, you're going to misunderstand his teaching, okay? And so in this intro message here, in this starting point, before we talk about what Jesus is all going to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount, we first have to talk about who he is and what he was about, because if you, if you miss that, you're, you're going to miss everything. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to highlight right at the beginning of this message today is, is there's this, it, it, you can't be Jesus, okay? That's just, I got to just say it. You and I and none of us here can be Jesus. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, well, duh, like you needed to say that. Um, but the fact of the matter is, there's this kind of idea. It's just sort of an idea that's out there. It's very strong in some of the more, you know, word of faith, prosperity type churches it's very strong there, but it's, it's in a lot of different churches. It, it, it kind of seeps and, and goes around. There's this idea when people, when Christians read the Gospels, there's this idea that when we read the Gospels, we're, that the re, one of the main reasons why Jesus came to earth is so that we could copy his life. Like he came to show us how we should live. And so there's, there's almost this idea, there's this teaching out there that Jesus was just a regular guy filled with the Holy Spirit so if you, you're just regular people, I'm just a regular person, if we just get filled with the Holy Spirit as much as him and just have enough faith, we can just live exactly like Jesus did because the reason he came was to show us how to live so we could copy how he lived, okay? And that's actually not true. Yes, it is true that there are elements of Jesus we're supposed to copy. 
Uh, certainly. I mean, Jesus said, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, I forget which chapter now, but in the gospel, he said, I came to serve, or, and so you need to serve too. So there's elements of his life, definitely. Uh, he came loving people. We need to love people too. All right? Uh, he suffered. You know, in the rest of the New Testament, the New Testament writers often look back at Jesus' suffering, and they say, when you suffer, you know, the model is Jesus. So there are elements of his life where the scripture explicitly tells us there are elements of Jesus' life that we are supposed to copy, okay? But this idea that Jesus was just a regular guy filled with the Holy Spirit, so if you just get filled with the Holy Spirit, you can just read through the Gospels and copy his life is absolutely not the main reason why he came. I mean, how many of you, okay, uh, when there's a big thunderstorm and your kids are freaking out, you just quietly talk to the thunderstorm and tell it, be still, and it stops. Any of you? When's the last time you were out at the lake, your kids are out in the boat in the middle, you're not with them, they don't have life jackets on or anything, and you tell them, get out and walk on water. Any of you done that recently? When's the last time you were in a new town, you're walking through a new town, and uh, you see a funeral hearse, big long hearse, cars and everything, and they're heading to the cemetery, and you don't like, oh man, these people are so sad. You stop the hearse, open up the back of the car, open up the casket, talk to the young guy in the casket and say, just get up. I, I, I don't want to see these people crying. And you just raise them from the dead. When's the last time any of you did that? You're leading a conference, thousands of people, okay? And you're talking on and on and on. And everybody just loves it because you're so good, okay? And it's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Oh, these people must be starving. You over there, you guys see you got some, what, some tuna? Got some crackers? Come up here. And then you feed the whole conference and there's tons of baskets left over. How many of you done that recently? See, Jesus, there is only one Jesus. We're not him. The main reason why he came to earth is not so we could copy him. He's God in the flesh. You can't save people. You can't go out into the streets and put your hand on someone and say, your sins are forgiven. You can't go, you know, walk on the street, find a church that you think is spiritually dead, go in there with a whip and drive everybody out. You might feel like it sometimes, maybe, in some places. But you can't do it, and if you did do it, it wouldn't be right. Jesus didn't come so you could copy his life. He's God in the flesh. And we're not him. It's not, he's not just a regular guy. I mean, you, I, I sometimes, you know, and people are well-meaning. And again, there's principles we can pull from his life. But you see things like, you know, books or conferences, you know, preach like Jesus or lead like Jesus. Jesus' own disciples didn't try to copy Jesus' life. Jesus preached in parables. You read Acts and the rest of the New Testament. His disciples didn't preach in parables. Jesus never married or had kids. Most of his disciples did. Jesus gathered 12 disciples around him and mentored them. And again, there's principles we can learn there. But his disciples, after he left, didn't gather, each go and gather 12 around him and go and live with them and all that sort of stuff. Jesus went to the villages. His disciples went to the cities. Jesus stayed in Israel. They went to the nations. The disciples weren't trying to copy Jesus' life. They were trying to obey him. And those are two very different things. They were not trying to copy his life. They were not trying to be Jesus because nobody can be Jesus. He's God in the flesh. And yes, you know, we can get motivated. We have the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did miracles and we can pray and amen, you know, and God will do some miracles through us and great things. And there's that great verse that says, greater things than these will you do. But we can't be Jesus. And when we read through the Gospels, the goal is not for us to read through the Gospels and thinking of all the things that we're going to do. The fact of the matter is when you read through the Gospels, most of this you'll never do. And thank God, because he's Jesus. That's why we can trust him. He's so far beyond us. I mean, how could you ever preach like Jesus or lead like Jesus? I mean, how would you even break that into steps? Step one, understand God perfectly. Step two, read the minds of everybody who's listening to you. Step three, do awesome miracles to convince them of the truth that you're talking about. Step four, be perfectly humble, except, oh wait, some of the things Jesus did, if we did them, that wouldn't be humble, would it? You imagine you're sitting in the back of a, we'll, we'll just update it a little bit, you're sitting in the back of a convertible, driving into a city, and all the people are lining the streets, 
And they're, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they're yelling out to you how amazing you are. And they're throwing their coats down on the ground and palm branches so that the tires of your car don't have to touch the ground. And the people around you are going, this is a little crazy. You should stop them from doing this. And you say, if they stopped worshiping me, the rocks would praise me. <laughs> it's Christmas time. Your family, someone's going to put the Christmas, you know, the star on the top of the Christmas tree. You know, it's sort of the big event, right? I'll do that. I'll do that. Take the star, put it on top of the Christmas tree. Whenever you do this, from now on, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> you can't be Jesus! Okay, when we read the Gospels, the goal of the Gospels is not to copy Jesus. The goal of the Gospels is, as you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, you, first of all, you, become, you come in awe of him. The creator of the universe took on flesh. And out of that, a holy fear takes root in your heart. I want to obey him. And out of that, a deep, passionate love for him. I'll do whatever for him. Our goal is to obey him, to follow him, to listen to him. And when we encounter his teaching in the Gospels, this is not the teaching of a regular guy filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the teaching of God himself. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount, this is not, you know, if I got filled enough with the Holy Spirit, I could preach messages like Jesus. No, you couldn't. He's God. Okay? No human being. I, you know, God intentionally lets pastors make mistakes. I, I make mistakes. He intentionally lets pastors make mistakes because if we were 100% right all the time, you could just totally rely on us. Okay? But He's God. So when we read the Sermon on the Mount... We're not just reading some message, oh, I could do that if it's filled with the Holy Spirit or, or whatever, some other guy. No, no, these are the words of God. And that means there's two sides of that coin. That means these words are absolute life. If we obey them, they are life to us. And on the flip side, these are the words of God, which means they are utter commands. It is fearful to disobey the commands of the Lord himself. And so as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, all right, these are, these, I mean, again, this is God's manifesto directly to us. Now, this is where I, I want to, you know, before we get into the Beatitudes, I want to, I, I want to do a, a rabbit trail here for just a moment because, again, as we read through the Gospels, the goal is not copy Jesus. The goal is fall in love with Jesus and find Jesus to be so big that actually you can trust him with your whole life. And I'll never forget in, in the last few years as this truth has just come alive to me more and more and more as I read the Gospels, I just joyfully say, oh, I'm so not like that. I love you, Jesus. I want to give you my life. I want to trust you because you're big enough to handle anything I can give you. I love it that he's far bigger than me, fully human on the one side, so he understands me, but God in the flesh. I can put my whole life and my kids' lives in his hands and trust him. And this brings me to this little rabbit trail I want to go on, which is this, parents. I want to talk to parents for just a few minutes here. I want to get super practical. Parents. One of your number one jobs as a parent is to teach your kids to trust Jesus. Now that sounds really obvious, but actually we get, as parents we get sidetracked from that all the time. As parents, your number one job is not to get your kids all spiritually busy. Okay? Not to get them doing all the activities and reading their Bibles and all that stuff. That's important. I love it. I get my kids to read the Bible. I read Bible stories to them. We have family devos. That is not my primary job as a parent, though. It's good. It's helpful. Spiritual disciplines and all that, getting them involved in church, getting them serving. Helpful. Very helpful stuff. Wonderful stuff. That is not my primary job as a parent. Something far more important than that is, as parents, your number one job is, or one of them, certainly part of the primary core is, to give your kids a picture of Jesus that is so big and so awesome and so glorious that they will entrust their lives to him. And when they are in crises and when they are in pain and when they're in struggles the rest of their lives, they will rest and trust in him rather than trying to do stuff on their own. Okay? Now, where this gets really practical, because everybody goes, okay, yeah, I totally get that. That sounds about right. Okay? So let me tell you one of the practical things, something I've done too many times in my life and something I see that many parents do too often that totally short circuits that process of teaching your kids to trust Jesus. And that is this. 
Every time your kid has a boo-boo on their knee, every time they have a runny nose, every time they have a tummy ache, the very first thing we do as parents is we just put our hands on them, many of us, and we just pray, oh, Jesus, help their cold to go away. Oh, Jesus, help. Oh, little Johnny's knee is bumped and bleeding. Oh, Jesus, pray you would heal his little knee. Would you pray you would heal his little stomach? And, and, you, and you say, oh, gasp. Are you telling us not to pray for healing for our kids? No, that's not what I'm telling you. I sometimes pray for healing for my kids. Okay? You say, well, when I pray for my kids, what I'm doing, I, I mean, the intentions are good. I totally get that. My intentions are good. When I'm praying for them, for these pains to go, for, for Jesus to heal them, I'm showing them how to take their problems to Jesus. I'm showing them, I'm helping them grow their faith that Jesus can do anything. No, you're not. That is not what you're doing. You're teaching your kids to play, pray thoughtless, meaningless prayers is what you're doing. You're teaching them to pray thoughtless, meaningless prayers. Why do I say that? Because nine times out of ten, does Jesus do anything? No. Gasp. Oh. Did you just say nine times out of ten, Jesus doesn't do anything? Yes. How many of you actually have kids? Okay. Oh, Jesus, help their cold to go away. What happens? A day or two later, it goes away. Guess what? That's what happens for the kids at school that don't pray for their colds too. Did you know that? And your kids aren't stupid. You pray, oh, I pray little Johnny's bump and his knee's going to go away. And then you step back, what happens? Half an hour later, it stops hurting, just like it would have if you hadn't prayed for it. You're going, oh, this is terrible. You're telling us Jesus doesn't answer prayers. No, I'm not. I'm telling you that nine times out of ten, he doesn't want to supernaturally take away your kid, all your kids' bumps and bruises and pains right away. So if you just ten times out of ten, just go and always pray for them like that, your kids aren't stupid, and what they're going to grow up, what you're teaching them is that prayer is just a thoughtless thing that doesn't actually do anything. At some point, doubt's going to come in. They're going to go, why do I pray at all? Because they have friends who don't pray, and they know people who don't, and they get over their stuff too. Wow. So what do you pray, Chris? Well, sometimes I, sometimes I do pray healing. I'll give you one example just to show that I'm not against praying for healing for your kids, but it has to come out of something. My daughter Joy had a, had a, a, a tooth loose. She's at that age where she's losing teeth all over the place, but this one tooth wouldn't come out. And uh, it was in there for about a month. It starts to rot. It's not pretty, okay? So, I mean, I was threatening pliers, different things. No, no, no. <laughs> And she's really scared. One day I'm in my devotions. Oh, this is ugly. So I'm praying. Oh, Jesus. Also, I just to sing wells up in me. You pray that that thing is going to come out today. It's going to build her faith. Okay, well, that was from the Holy Spirit. Okay, good. Breakfast comes. This thing, again, for a whole month, this thing was not coming out. And it was getting, it was, it was getting gross. And so she comes up. I said, Joy, we're going to pray this thing's coming out today. And I'm thinking inside, like, Jesus, you better do something. So I put my hands on her and I said, Jesus, we are praying that this tooth is going to come out today. Get up. I go to work, okay? I'm not even quite out the door. I got my shoes on. I'm just about to head out to church. She goes, Daddy, my tooth came out. Thank you, Jesus, okay? <laughs> Whew. Okay, so I tell you that story just because what I'm going to tell you next. Nine times out of ten, I don't do that. I only do that if I feel the Lord leading me to do that because he wants to do it. But nine times out of ten, Jesus doesn't want to heal all their bumps and bruises supernaturally just like that. You want to know why? Let me tell you something. A story we read to our kids just, uh, just several weeks ago. We have these character books we read to our kids. Uh, they're from the 1950s, so the drawings are really bad, but the stories are good, okay? My parents read them to me when I was a kid. They're these B stories. Be kind, be honest, all this sort of stuff. Real, real good stuff. Anyway, one of the stories we read to them several weeks ago just encapsulates perfectly this truth. And in the story, there's these two kids, and these two kids, they, they catch this caterpillar, and they put it in a jar, caterpillar spins a cocoon, okay? And so these kids are really excited. They want to see the butterfly born out of the cocoon. And so the cocoon's there a couple of weeks, and then one day they notice the cocoon moving, okay? And so in the story, these two children are just really pumped. They're going to watch this butterfly be born. And so the, this species of butterfly has a, you know, God's made it with a special tooth so that it can kind of start to cut its way out of the cocoon. And so these two children are watching this butterfly. He starts to struggle, and he's trying to cut his way out of the cocoon. And he's struggling, and he's struggling. And the kids start to get worried because this butterfly's struggling and struggling. He's not able to get out. And he's working at it. He's working at it. He's working at it. Finally, the kids, not 
not having a lot of patience and wanting to help the, the butterfly, they figure, we're going to help this butterfly out of its cocoon. So they go get some scissors, and they gently, carefully cut the cocoon open, and then the butterfly flops out. Okay, and his wings are all uh, sopping wet and soft, and the thing flops around, and, and, and flops around, flops around, flops around, flops around for a day, it never flies, and then it dies. And then what happens in the story is these two kids go to their grandma, who's very wise, and they ask, what happened with the butterfly? And then she tells them something that is absolutely profound. See, it turns out with certain species of butterflies, okay, the struggle, how God has made it, the struggle to get out of the cocoon is actually essential for them to learn how to fly. See, because it's in the hours of struggle getting out of it, what happens is there's, the, there's, this, there's this moisture, there's this uh, whatever it is, this liquid that's inside their bodies that during the struggle gets squeezed, and it has to be a long, hard struggle, that gets squeezed into the veins of their wings, making their wings stiff so that they can fly. So if in your love for the, for the little butterfly, you may try to get them out of their struggle and you cut that cocoon open, that butterfly's never going to fly because without the struggle, his wings are always going to be floppy and weak. And so by trying to help the butterfly, by helping him out of his struggle rather than letting him struggle, these kids actually hurt the butterfly. Now the thing is, you have to understand what Jesus' goals are with your kids. He does not want them to avoid all pain. He does not want them to go through their childhood never having a bump, never having the flu, never having a cold, never getting you know, made fun of or having someone tease them. Because what's going to happen to them when they're 18? They're going to go out there with floppy soft wings and they'll never fly for the kingdom. And so as parents, our number one job is not to Always show them, model for them that whenever there's a problem, we just try to pray our way out of it and then Jesus doesn't do it, so prayer doesn't do anything. Our number one job is every one of those little hurts and bumps. Those little ones are tiny compared to the big ones they're going to face someday. But in that struggle, our goal is to show them a Jesus that is so big and so awesome, they can trust in him through the struggle, not just avoiding it. So, how does this work out? Just a couple quick stories to show you practical, okay? I get it wrong so often. This last week I had one day where I just nailed it. Okay? So I'll just share that, just to show you how this looks. Okay, this last Tuesday, I go downstairs. It's bedtime. I'm going to tuck the kids into bed. I go down to the girls' room. And when I get down there, my oldest daughter, Joy, is curled up on the floor next to her bed, uh, crying, which, of course, as a dad, you're like, oh, yeah, who do I need to kill? <laughs> She's crying. So I... Joy, what's the matter? She had a really bad earache. Okay, now right here is where many parents, without thinking, and not bad intentions, but without thinking, we default immediately to, oh Jesus, I just pray you would take this earache away. Oh Jesus, I just pray you would take this earache away. And then what? Like, you never stop to think that she's going to face far bigger things than earaches in her life. So my job isn't just to pray avoidance, and then if Jesus, if it's not his will to do it, then what? Then she goes, well, thanks, Jesus. She starts to get this picture in her head of a Jesus that made promises to her that he didn't make that he doesn't keep. So I'm not going to just put my hands on her and pray, Jesus, get her out of this earache. I am working with Jesus to raise up someone who's going to be strong for him and who's going to love him, who's going to rely on him in struggles and knows where to go when she's in pain. So I pick her up, sit on the floor, lean against the wall. I just hold her for a couple minutes. Just hold her. She's crying. Why? I'm, she's young. She's eight years old. One of my jobs as a dad is just to show her the father's love, first of all. I just hold her. Just hold her for a couple minutes. She's crying. And then I start to pray. Very simple. I just said, Jesus, thank you that we are not alone here right now. Thank you that you've promised to always go with us. And then I said something that I often talk to my kids about when they're in pain. I said, thank you, Jesus, that you understand what excruciating pain is like. The crucifixion, right? See, the crucifixion was about a lot more than just forgiveness of sins. The crucifixion says, Jesus understands pain. So I often tell my kids, Jesus gets pain. He put himself through pain. So I said, thank you, Jesus, 
that you, and I'm holding her, I just said, thank you, Jesus, that you understand perfectly what it is like to hurt and to suffer. And then I just said, and then I just started to declare over just simple prayer. I just said, I trust you, Jesus. I trust you that you're going to carry us through this. I trust you that you're going to bring us through on the other side. I trust you. And after that, we just sang hymns. I, I love the hymns. And so often at bedtime, we just sing hymns with my kids. The, the words are great. And so I just held her, and she's, you know, she's got tears, and, and she's in pain. And we put some eardrops in there, and then we just sang hymns. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I've decided to follow Jesus. We just sang together for 10 or 15 minutes. Held her. What am I trying to do? My goal is a dad. It's not to just pray thoughtless prayers over her all the time. My job is to teach her where to go when she's in pain. Teach her that Jesus is big enough to carry her through pain and struggles. You know, one more. Our, our house isn't normally this adventurous in one day. But later that night, 2 o'clock at night, I'm in bed, fast asleep. My son Charlie, he's five years old, comes up, wakes me up in the middle of the night, and he's crying. He had a real, he had a real bad dream. Okay? And right there, I mean, your, your first thought is, it's not real, go back to bed. <laughs> I've done that, okay? I'm not perfect. I'm, you know, our first two kids, our, our last two kids are going to have perfect parenting almost. I'm just practicing on the first two. Don't do that. Oh, okay, son, take him out of the room so that me and the Don don't have to both be up. I'll tell you what some parents would do right there. The moment it's a bad dream, they're casting out demons. Can I tell you something? First of all, use a little bit of common sense. Second of all, most of your kids' bad dreams are not from demons. Sometimes they are, and I know of situations where the, you know, God is, you, the parents, and there was real serious nightmares happening all the time, and parents prayed about it. There was a demonic root. I've known of a few situations like that here at the church. Then they prayed about it and, and over. But you know what? Nine times out of ten, it's not demons. They're little kids. Their little brains are developing. They're learning what to be afraid of and what not to be afraid of. It's just a developing brain. I mean, we all go through it. When I was a kid, I was, there was a stage in my life I was petrified of being kidnapped every night when I went to bed. It was just, but you have to grow out of it. You're just learning. It wasn't demonic. I mean, if, it, it, and if you're worried that it's demonic, you pray and fast about that and listen to God and seek wise counsel and he will show you if that's what it is. But nine times out of ten, it's just a developing brain developing. And you go in there talking about demons and you just make their nightmares worse. Middle of the night, I just had a nightmare. In the name of Jesus, you demons and demons and demons and your kids are, wahoo Whoa! No. Out in the hallway. You don't talk to him. He, and he's, he's still crying. He's all worked up. So I don't try to talk to him. You know, my deep personality is just, okay, let's get over this right now. What was the dream? And no, that's not real. And it's all good. Pray for you, God. No, no, no. You just hold him. Show him the Father's love. My job as a parent is what? Not to help them avoid this situation. Not push this situation under the blankets because I want to go back to sleep. It, it, my job in this situation is to teach them to connect, quiet their hearts and connect to Jesus because he's big enough that he, they can trust him. Just hold them for a bit. Sing some hymns again. Same hymns as before. I don't know that many, so you just do the same ones. It's so sweet to trust in Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I've decided to follow. By the time I get to have decided to follow Jesus, that's one of Charlie's favorites. He starts, I hear him start to mumble the words with me. I know he's calming down. Now I tell him a story about when I was, when I've been scared. I say, hey, I know what it's like to be scared. And how, I, how, how I've had to trust Jesus when I'm scared. Tell him a story. After I pray for him, what do I pray? Oh, Jesus, I pray he'll never have a bad dream again. He's going to have other bad dreams. And a bad dreams, when he gets older, he's going to face things that are a lot worse than a kid's bad dream. This is practice for him to learn how to connect to Jesus in bigger things. So I don't pray for him never to have a bad dream again. I say, thank you, Jesus, that we're safe, that you're with us. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not alone. And I tell him, you're not alone. Jesus is with you. I'm here. You're not alone. You can connect to Jesus anytime. Hold his hand to bed. That's what we do. That's what we do as parents, all right? Now, that was my rabbit trail. I wanted to get there. I just felt like the Lord wanted me to say it. I think it's practical. I think as parents need to hear it. But how did I get there? The reason I got there was there's this idea that's out there that Jesus was just a regular guy 
and filled with the Holy Spirit, and we're regular guys filled by the Holy Spirit. If you just have enough faith, you'll be like him. No, 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 no. When we read through the Gospels, we should get a vision of God in the flesh that is so big, we fear him and love him and trust him because he's so big and so awesome. And then we learn to trust him and put our whole lives in his hands, and then we pass that on to our kids. Reading the Gospels is not about copying Jesus' life. It's about learning to fear him and love him and obey him. That's what it's about. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon to be obeyed, all right? And all I'm going to get through now in this last uh, part of the message is the Beatitudes, the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And you'll notice in your Bibles when you come to the Beatitudes, it says the Beatitudes. What does that word Beatitudes even mean? Beatitudes is from the Latin Beatitudo, and uh, it just means happy or lucky, or, uh, you know, blissful, fortunate, how fortunate you are. And, and you say, well, why is that in the Latin? Jesus didn't speak Latin. You're right, Jesus did not speak Latin, okay? But when the early church, because remember, the, the official language of Rome, the Roman Empire, was Latin, even though everybody spoke Greek, okay? But when the early church was translating the Bible into Latin, then over this section of the Bible, because Jesus over and over again said, happy and blessed and fortunate are you, they labeled it in, in Latin, they labeled, labeled it beatitudo, which is just happy or fortunate, and we just took that word and put it uh, into the English, okay? So beatitudes just means the happy, fortunates, blissful, whatever it is, okay? The blessings, all right? So verse 1, where am I here? Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed, happy, or fortunate, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we could do a whole, you know, we could do a whole series just in the Beatitudes. And I'm not going to do that because my goal is to, to do the whole Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so there's an absolute gold mine here. We're not going to go through each one of these, okay? But what I want to do is I want to help you see Two really important overarching truths about the Beatitudes so you understand them better, okay? Most of us, when we read the Beatitudes, we actually miss the main thing of what Jesus is trying to do. Because what most of us do is we look at this, if you could just put that list up, thanks, thanks Darlene. If, when we look at this list, we see this as a list of these are the character traits or the attitudes that Jesus wants you to have if you're going to live in his kingdom. Now, of course, that is part of what Jesus is doing here, like Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I mean, yes, that is the heart of someone living in the kingdom. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are, you know, the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, it says in, in later verses. Certainly, there is an element here where Jesus is, is identifying the heart attitudes and the traits of a person living in the kingdom, okay? But that's, okay, but that's only one piece of what Jesus is doing here, and we, it's actually not the main Thing that Jesus is doing here. This is not just a list of things that we're supposed to aspire to to do, okay? For example, verse 4 there, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Is Jesus saying there that in order to be in his kingdom, it's more spiritual to be sad than happy? Is that what Jesus is saying? Like, is this just a list of attitudes we all have to take on? Okay, oh, I'm a happy person. I'm not very spiritual. I have to be someone who mourns. Is that what Jesus is saying? How about the first one there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, most of us take poor in spirit, we just turn that into humble. Jesus is just saying blessed are the humble, and because humility is a good attitude in, in, in the kingdom of heaven, so obviously that's, so we need to be more humble. Well, if Jesus had wanted to say blessed are the humble, he could have, there was words for that. In fact, verse 5, blessed are the meek, the word there, meek, in, encompasses humble. So when Jesus is talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, it doesn't just mean blessed are the humble. If he wanted to say that, he could have said that. The phrase there, poor in spirit, it's actually, you could translate it spiritual beggar or spiritually destitute. 
It has the connotation of someone who does not know God the way they should, who is ignorant of of the Scriptures, who is spiritually destitute, ignorant, not knowing God the way they should. So is Jesus saying, blessed are the spiritually destitute, for there's the kingdom of heaven? In other words, is Jesus saying that in order to be part of the kingdom of heaven, if you know the Bible too well or you know God too well, that's not good, and if you're full of joy, that's not good, you have to become sad and spiritually destitute in order to be spiritual. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. Obviously, something else is going on here. I want to just bring this home, this point home to you even more. If you go to Luke chapter 6, I'll just briefly look at, in Luke 6, Luke has a version of the Sermon on the Mount in uh, his gospel, and he says the Beatitudes this way, Luke 6 verse 20, and Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So Luke doesn't even have poor in spirit. He just has poor. Now that's not a contradiction. Jesus will have taught both, okay? Neither Matthew or Luke was trying to write down every single word and point that Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus will have talked for hours, okay? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were, they were writing down the main points that the Holy Spirit wanted remembered for all time, Okay? So, but he says, blessed are the poor. And then he goes on to say, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied, and blessed are you who weep. So now again, here we are with this thing. Blessed are you who mourn. Is it better to be sad than happy? Is it better to be spiritually destitute than to know God? Is it better to be poor than wealthy? Is it better to be hungry? Because if that's true, see, that's sort of the interpretation that has hung like a cloud subconsciously over Christians for centuries. Christians for centuries have felt subconsciously in the back of their head like, God, it's more spiritual to be poor than to be wealthy. That's, that's the motivating factor why thousands of Christians over the centuries took vows of poverty and moved out into the boonies and lived like monks. Some of them were no doubt genuinely called by the Holy Spirit to do that, but many of them did it simply because they thought they just equated poor means more spiritual than rich. That's the end of it. And having enough food on your table is less spiritual than if you're starving all the time. Is that what Jesus is saying? Well, no. Obviously not. I could refute that very easily from the rest of Scripture. Two years ago, I took a whole message in the True Spirituality series that totally took apart that whole thing of wealth means you're less spiritual than if you're poor. And I could just take you on a quick tour through the Scriptures to show you, you know, in the Old Testament and New Testament, at, you know, Abraham, Job, and David, all of them were immensely wealthy. Abraham, it says in Genesis, was immensely wealthy. Yet he was also called a friend of God. How many people are called friends of God? Job was immensely wealthy. Job chapter 1, God brags about Job and says, Is there anyone on earth like him who is blameless and upright? David, immensely wealthy. A man after God's own heart. I could take you through people in the New Testament as well who were committed followers of Jesus who were very wealthy. So the Bible teaches very clearly that riches are neutral. You, you can, I can take you through the Bible and show you rich people who had soft hearts to Jesus and soft hearts to God and who followed him. And I can show you in the Bible poor people who were worldly and hard-hearted. And I can show you the flip. I can show you rich people who are worldly and selfish and hard-hearted, and I can show you poor people who are soft towards God. Because the Bible teaches riches are neutral. It's what you do with them and, and what, where your heart's at. That's what matters. That's what matters. That's the, that's the important thing. So you say, well, what is Jesus talking about here then? If, they, if, if riches are neutral... If joy, I mean, why would he say, blessed are you if you're poor? Blessed are you if you're spiritually destitute? Why would he say that then? Well, in order to understand why Jesus is listening to these things at the beginning. See, the rest of the Beatitudes are talking about heart stuff that is good. You know, righteousness and mercy and all sorts of stuff. But why in these first couple of Beatitudes is he hitting these things? What's happening? We just have to understand the context. Who was Jesus speaking to when he preached the Sermon on the Mount? And if we go to the end of Matthew chapter 4, okay, we're going to find who Jesus was preaching to when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew 4, 23. And Jesus went through all Galilee, teaching teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Okay, now, now that's the end of chapter 4. And then right into chapter 5. Now remember, in the original manuscript, there's no chapter or verse breaks. It's just all together. Okay, we put in the chapter and verse breaks years later to make it easier to find stuff. Okay, but right out of that, so he just keeps going. There's no chapter break in the original. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he goes into the Beatitudes. Okay, so here's the setting. Jesus comes in his ministry. Who's he ministering to? He's out in the countryside. He's ministering to the masses, the sick and the hurting and the oppressed. He is not in the posh neighborhoods of Jerusalem. He's not ministering here to the wealthy, to the religious elite, to the political elite. He doesn't exclude them. He's no, he doesn't hate the rich. He doesn't hate the wealthy. He's not, he's not excluding them. Some of them, no doubt, came out to see him, but that's not the thrust of his ministry. He's out in the countryside ministering to the oppressed and the hurting and the needy. And he said this. He said that he would do this at the very beginning of his ministry. I'll just show you this, Luke 4, 18 and 19. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus said this, quoting Isaiah 61 about himself. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not that he's not preaching good news to the rich, but it's the focus. He'll, he'll let the rich can gladly come in too. But this is who he's going to. To proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay? So he's out in the countryside ministering not to the religious elite, not to the political uh, elite, not to the wealthy. He's, he's, he's speaking to sort of what the, the elite people would have called the rabble, the have-nots, the uneducated, the ignorant, the poor, and the sick. Okay? And again, this is very revolutionary what he was doing because in those days, spirituality was reserved for the elite. Okay? Spirituality in those days was determined by all kinds of external things. Like, did you follow all the washing rules? And did you follow all the hundreds of minute Sabbath rules? And who were you connected to? Who were your friends? Who was your family? What rabbi were you schooled under? What was your training? How much money did you have? That's how they decided. In those days, if you were blind or if you were very sick, they thought you or your parents must have sinned. They thought the curse of God was on you. So if you were one of these poor, needy, oppressed, ignorant people, they just looked at you as rabble. God's favor is not on you. You're not in the kingdom. That's how they viewed things. And so into this culture, Jesus comes ministering exactly to them. He comes ministering exactly to them, not to the elite. He comes ministering to the exact ones that everybody's been telling them all their lives, you're nothing with God. You're nothing with God. You're nothing with God. And God goes to them. And then he goes up on a mountain because he loves them so much. His shepherd's heart, he sees the masses. Think of his heart. He must have been out there days and days healing all these people, touching each one individually. Thousands of people being healed and touched and ministered to. And out of his shepherd's heart, he goes up on a mountain and he's going to preach to these masses now and show them how to live in the kingdom. And so he starts off his message. What is he doing here in the Beatitudes? I'll tell you what he's doing in the Beatitudes. He's not making another list of things they have to do to get into the kingdom. They already think there's a big list in order to get in. He's doing away with that list, and he's flinging wide the gates of heaven and the gates of the kingdom to these people. So he says, blessed are the spiritually destitute. Okay? He's not writing in stone a new spiritual principle that it's better to be ignorant and spiritually destitute and depressed and oppressed than to know the Bible and to know Jesus. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, and he's not saying blessed are the poor, so it's better to be poor than rich. He's not writing a, a, you know, in stone a spiritual principle. He's talking to poor people. He's talking to spiritually destitute people. He's talking to hungry people. And so what he's saying is, how fortunate are you today, those of you who are spiritually destitute? How fortunate are you today? Because up until now, you always thought you were on the outside and you were excluded. And I'm here to tell you that the kingdom's for you too. How fortunate are you poor people? Not that being poor is being better than being rich, but he's talking to poor people who thought they were out. And he said, how fortunate. Today's your lucky day. You're blessed. 
Blessed are the poor, because I'm here to tell you today that the kingdom is open to you too. And blessed are the hungry, and blessed are those who mourn, and those who weep, because the kingdom is open to you too. He's not making a huge list of things they have to do. He's telling them, the people he's talking to, they can come in as well. And then he moves on through the list, and the rest of the list, he notice how he's not talking about externals, he's talking about internals. Because again, they were steeped in a culture that was all about the external. How did you observe this? How did you look here? Who are you connected here? How do you talk? How do you dress? How spiritual you are. And he says, it's none of that. He says, you can be the least spiritual looking person on earth. I'm talking to the least spiritual people on earth. And it's about what's inside your heart. Blessed are the meek, the humble. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Like if you have a hunger inside of you for righteousness, that's what God's looking for. Blessed are the Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And so this is an invitation. The Beatitudes are an invitation to people who don't, who everybody thinks is are out. It's an invitation to them that they can come in. So, let's sum this up. Two things. What is God saying to us through the Beatitudes today? Number one. The Beatitudes tell us that favor with God is based on your heart, not external respectability, and religious activity. This is such good news. So many Christians spend huge chunks of their lives, and many of you here today, this is what you struggle with. And you carry around this inferiority complex and this guilt because you're constantly comparing yourself to everybody, all the super Christians around you, and you constantly feel like you don't measure up. You go through your whole life. I know, many of you here today, I'm identifying with you right now. I've done this so much in my life. You go through this life and you're just weighed down because you're comparing yourself always and you always fall short. So-and-so's kids have already memorized a book of the Bible. They go to the prayer room five times a week already. They're part of the prayer team. All my kids want to do is run through the sprinkler and jump on the trampoline. (laughs) I'm just so unspiritual as a parent. So-and-so, when she gets together with her small group, they cry every time. (laughs) My cell group, by comparison, is hard. It's boring. I'm sure everybody wants to go to her cell group. Nobody wants to be with me. A so-and-so, you know, oh, Chris, I've heard, you know, he gets up at 4.30 in the morning to do his devotions every day. I only get up at 6.30, and so he just must be so close to God. Never mind that he has to go to bed while it's still light in order to pull it off. And we just compare externals. Okay? Now, is prayer wonderful? It's fasting. I happen to believe if you're not regularly connecting with Jesus, you can never bear the fruit of the Spirit. Prayer and the Word of God are life. But notice he, in, in, that, in that list of the Beatitudes, it's not how many hours you pray or how many days you fast or how many times your kids do that and all that sort of stuff. He says it's just, it's the heart. You know, compare yourself. You put this yoke on you to all these super-Christians, and you miss what actually matters to God. The reason we pray, and the reason we read our Bibles, and the reason we do these things is only for one reason, so that we can bear the fruit, which is what Jesus is really looking for, which is mercy. How many of us are merciful? You know, forget all that other stuff. That's not what God's measuring you on. How merciful are you? How merciful are you to the hypocrites in your life? And everybody has some. How merciful are you to your spouse? Or are you judgmental? Are you a peacemaker? Or do you sow discord with gossip and start fights and arguments all the time? Do you have a hunger in your heart for righteousness? Those are the things that actually matter to Jesus. And the Beatitudes, into this whole mindset of comparing that we just seem to automatically do as, as human beings. We just compare, 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 and it weighs us down. And into that mindset, the, the Beatitudes roll like a tidal wave of freedom and joy and life. Oh God, I don't have to match up to everybody around me in the externals. I just have to say yes to you. This brings up the second thing. Number two, the Beatitudes tell us The kingdom is open to all who desire to enter it, including you and me here today. It's not about your qualifications. It has nothing to do with how spiritual you feel or how spiritual you act. Did you know that? It has nothing to do with your qualifications. 
If living in the kingdom was about qualifications, none of us would ever qualify. We go so much by spiritual feelings. Do I feel spiritual today or do I not? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, goes to the people who everybody wrote off. Everybody. They had written themselves off. The Pharisees had written them off. The Sadducees had written them off. All the whatever you sees had written them off. The religious elite had written them off. They had written themselves off. And Jesus comes to them and he says, I know you don't feel spiritual, but today's your lucky day because it's not based on that. All you have to give Jesus is not some qualifications. It's the tiny yes in your heart. If all you have to give Jesus is a tiny yes in your heart and you give him that, yes, not about qualifications. And if Jesus was here, so the ones he picked on in the Beatitudes, he was just listing the ones who everybody in their day thought were, was out. If he was here, he'd give a different list. Who are the ones we think are out today? Maybe some of you are here today and you've been through a divorce. And yeah, sure, you made a whole bunch of mistakes you regret. But it's over now. And you just kind of think, I mean, you still come to church and you're going to go to heaven when you die, but you just go through your life and you just think you're on the trash heap and Jesus there's, could never use you and all sorts of stuff. Maybe you're here today and, and you've done some horrible things in your life. Maybe you even had like an abortion or something. You've done stuff that you have really regret. And you come to church and you want to go to heaven when you die, but you just feel like you'll never be anything with God. Or you were abused when you were a kid and you just feel ugly and worthless and unlovable and impure. Or maybe you're just here today and you're just a, one of those, you just feel like a boring Christian. Nothing exciting ever happens to you. No miracles ever happen. You have no big testimonies. You're constantly comparing yourself, as I just said, to all the super Christians around you and you just feel worthless and boring and you feel like you'll never amount to anything with Jesus. And Jesus says to all of you and to all of us today, he says the kingdom, he throws open in the Beatitudes, the kingdom is for all of you. Not qualifications, not comparing, not super spiritual. It's anyone who will give him that tiny yes in her heart. Yes, Jesus, I'm coming after you. That's all he wants. And the kingdom is open to us. So, we're going to have baptisms now, which I think is just so fitting out of that. But I want to pray for you first. And I just want to pray that Jesus is just going to, by his Holy Spirit, break down the barriers in our hearts that keep us distant from him and keep us feeling so worthless and so distant from him and so useless that the Holy Spirit this week is really going to invite you and the Beatitudes are about Jesus inviting anyone who wants to say yes into his kingdom. Lord Jesus, I thank you that there are no second-class citizens in your kingdom. There are no second-class citizens in your kingdom. It's not about who has the most exciting miracles or testimonies. Those are wonderful when they come, but it's not about that. It's not about the external spiritual activity, even though spiritual activity sometimes can help us to make our hearts better. But that's not what you're counting. It's about the heart. Holy Spirit, I want to pray for everyone here today. I pray that everyone here in this Southland Church family this morning, that we are going to give you our yeses. It's all you're asking for. And then we can live the kingdom life. I pray that you would help us to learn to trust you. Help us as parents to give our kids such a powerful, glorious picture of you that they will grow up to be strong in you through whatever storms life throws their way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.